This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Premier Wynne is testifying today in the liberal bribery trial. Uh, and, of course, uh, not good news for any elected leader to be doing such a thing. Uh, but, of course, it, it's hard to tell which direction this is going to go and if she will defend them or, of course, uh, try to avoid them and distance herself from them. To talk more about all of this, Christo Avalis is with us, Social Sciences and, Human- and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto and is with us now. Hello, Crystal. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, today is the day, of course, she is testifying. Uh, obviously, when you're testifying, you go up and you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, that being said, will, will this testimony sway one way or the other? Will she try to defend her, her people, or will she try to distance herself from them? I think it'll have to be a mixture of the two. I mean, the reality is that there's both the, the legality that's happening here, but there's also the politics. And you can't separate the two when any kind of sitting official, uh, especially a premier, is testifying on an issue. So you might have, for instance, um, her effort to try to distance herself from this matter. But in so doing, um, it, it might protect her legally but hurt her politically. It might make her look like she's eschewing responsibility or that she doesn't have a firm grasp on what's happening in her own administration, her own party, her own office, what have you. Again, if she defends her people too closely, that might inspire this view that she's loyal and she takes responsibility, but that could put her in trouble by making her look like she's connected in some direct or indirect way to the you know things that have been alleged. That's the balance she has to kind of tightrope walk. Uh, would they all be on the same page? Would anybody be surprised about what anybody says uh, before all of this uh, trial? Would, uh, would anybody be surprised at anybody's testimony between the three of these people? I mean, I'm not sure. I think, you know, part of the, the challenge is that, you know, they're, they're probably relatively on the same page. Uh, and this isn't to kind of, you know, in, inspire any idea that they're colluding or what have you, that they're corroborating testimony in any kind of unseemly way, but, you know, they probably all have a similar perspective on the, on the case, which is that, you know, there wasn't bribery here, and that what the decision was made was for the best of the party and for the best of the riding and all of that, and I think from that perspective, you'll see that. Now, they're, part of the, the Crown's job or the Crown's strategy might be to, you know, show inconsistencies between the three main people and show inconsistencies between the testimonies to try to develop some of these, um, you know, difference. Maybe through questioning, uh, an individual reveals something or reveals a perspective unintentionally or what have you. And that's, you know, something a skilled lawyer can often do. Uh, can she, as she has said, can she not just say, hey, you know what, we're looking for the best person for the job? And this person was defeated last time, so we want to go with somebody different. How, no, how, far, how far does that get her? You know, I mean, part of, like, I mean, to a certain degree, that could be partially true. I mean, the reality is that, um, you know, in, in politics, there's, there's the kind of formal and informal. And with, with a lot of parties, um, they reserve a certain right to ultimately approve or, or disapprove candidates. And there are processes and whatnot, but most parties leave themselves wiggle room to kind of say at some point, look, we don't want to let you run. We don't think you'll win. We think you have a item in your past that makes you uh, a liability to our brand. Or maybe you have, you've written something that is ideologically incongruous with what we believe in, and we don't want that being on the news. So parties reserve that right all the time. And I think the specific accusations here go specifically to, okay, we don't want this guy running again, and let's offer him something so he doesn't. I think that's where it becomes a bit of an issue, is that it's not simply, um, look, the party didn't feel this person stood for the values of, of the Ontario Liberals, and, we, and we, we didn't vet him, which parties do all the time. But they, there's an allegation here that he was offered a, a deal to step aside for, for Glenn Tebow. And I think that's where the specific accusations and troubles come in. Why even bother to do that? Why not just uh, let it let it take its course? Why not just say, hey, you know what, we don't we don't uh, think that uh, you're a preferred candidate. Uh, we want we want to go with someone else. If you want to run, you go ahead, you do your thing, you knock yourself out. Why even go this direction? Why even make the offer? 
sure. I'm not sure. You're right. There's there's opportunities they could have done here. They could have, you know, if they were confident in Tebow's ability to say win a nomination contest, sure. they could have done a, nice, a nomination contest. And you know, the party probably couldn't be openly partisan in that. But Tebow has a existing base in Sudbury. There's no reason why he couldn't have been, you know, helped informally by say being endorsed by uh, other uh, sitting liberal MPPs. Uh, to, to run and, and likely would be quite successful. You know, it could also be, you know, politically, it, you know, it doesn't look good the particular candidate represents an equity group in terms of people with disabilities, and maybe the party didn't want to look like they were discarding somebody yeah. who faces these challenges because it would look like the party doesn't care about that. So in other words, they were trying to do the politically correct thing and just wanted this all solved. I mean, to a certain degree, I, I don't think that's a fully unfair view. I think they were trying to find a way that they could do this without, you know, yeah, creating a lot of political controversy or creating a lot of infighting. The way they, the way I would have done it, as somebody who, you know, who, who comments on this and is who involved in politics to a certain degree, is you have to let the local members decide. Mm-hmm. And the local members should be the ones to decide. That would be my perspective. Now, again, in these allegations, I don't know if, if a bribery was offered or if it was just kind of informal pressure behind the scenes asking him to step down. You know, one of those is illegal. One of those is just, you know, it's just politics. Because there are times where you might be unsure of who's going to win the nomination, but you're really confident that one person would be more likely to win the seat. So the provincial party or federal party or, or local executive might say to somebody, look, we'd really like you to step aside. We feel it's what's best for the party. You know, that might be a little, you know, a little unfair at times, but I don't think that would violate any kind of, political rules that happens all the time would uh, there even yeah. would, would there even be a case here Christo if mr. Olivier hadn't uh, recorded this uh, obviously because of his disabilities he, he, it's easier for him to record things than take notes which is what he did uh, the fact that that exists if it didn't would there be a case probably not I, I wouldn't think so I mean there, there he could certainly make those allegations and and you know he has no reason not to be you know discarded he you know like he's not not a fraudster or anything. So uh, maybe the, if he made his allegations without this kind of proof, then you'd see something along the lines of maybe there'd be an investigation into it. They'd call some people. They'd talk to all the parties allegedly involved. But it'd be difficult to bring charges because, again, you're, you're into a kind of he said, she said kind of scenario here. And, again, when you're, when you're charging somebody with anything, you generally try to err on the side of caution because, you know, you don't want to just be seen as frivolously bringing up people in front of the court, especially when it's political. You don't want, you know, charges that the police or prosecution of any kind are, are, are against the political party and are hauling people before the court. So you've got to be very careful. So I think the recording plays a big role in that. Now, of course, now, we're, now it's the interpretation of the recordings and whatnot. Hmm. So that's, that, that's something that I think a court can kind of weigh in on plausibly. Uh, the premier obviously waived her parliamentary immunity. Good idea in retrospect? I mean, she kind of had to, I, I would say. You know, the reality is that if she didn't, then she would look uh, really bad. Um, it would be a... But yes, some, a may, some may say, Christo uh, already does already. Uh, what's another one going to do? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you're right. She's kind of between a rock and a hard place on this issue. I think, you know, this is probably the better of two bad decisions. Uh, if she doesn't do this, it's still, she's still going to be part of the trial, even if her name's not mentioned. It's still a trial about her and her leadership. Uh, again, whether fair or not, that's what the political you know, vein of this is going to be. And if she's seen as doing that, it's going to be seen as poor leadership. You know, somebody else allegedly did the dirty work for her to try to get the candidate in, and she's sitting in Queen's Park, not at the trial in Sudbury, because she's, wait, she's invoked parliamentary privilege. I think politically that looks probably even worse. There's a chance here if she testifies and, you know, they win the trial, they're found not guilty of, of, the, of the alleged crimes, that she can say, look, we've investigated this. I commend the, the work of, the, of all those involved to make sure justice was, was upheld here, and it was, and, like, let's move on towards the election. That's the best hope she has. Because, again, if she didn't testify and her side won, there would still be questions of, well, Kathleen Wynne was hiding the key piece of evidence. So, in your opinion, Christo, would she have known about this? And if not, should she have known about it? 
that's a tough one. I, uh, you know, when, when you're talking about a legal case, I want to be careful. I mean, my view is that, again, with, with by-elections in particular, the, the central party generally has a bit more of a pulse on local ridings. Because, again, Ontario has over 100 seats, both federally and provincially. So when you're running a general election, you know, the premier and her, and her staff can only do so much to, to sway a result. The premier doesn't visit all five, doesn't even step foot in a majority of the ridings, I would say, in, in many elections. You know, they have their target ridings and they have their own work to do. And, and I think that's one thing. In a by-election, though, you may only have one or two or three seats going on at once, and they're often a key test of, you know, is our government doing well? And this particular riding is a riding that could have very conceivably gone to the NDP, so there's a lot of political pressure there. So I think in all of those things combined, Kathleen Wynne probably was paying attention to this particular riding more than she normally would have. Now, does that mean that she did anything in this regard? I really don't know. But I think that that, that context of it being in a by-election, in a kind of swing riding, with a high-profile NDP uh, you know, crossover from federal, with that person eventually, and again, this wasn't promised from the outset, but with that person upon their election becoming a cabinet minister of a high-profile file in which the government is dealing with a lot of controversy, I mean, there's just a confluence of issues happening here that makes it very difficult. And yeah, nothing of that, uh, you know, guarantees legal guilt or, or culpability, but it does create a lot of political problems. Uh, as we've talked about before on this stuff, Christo, it's always hard to get a conviction. Um, are we to assume that this will be tossed out? Are we to assume this is going nowhere? And does it matter? Damage well, done. Damage done. I mean, the damage is done, but a conviction would be more damage to be done, right? I mean, I'm not sure about, you know, the, 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 the law specifically and stuff. I mean, legal experts could probably tell you, well, out of, when cases go to court, what are the percentages of, 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 of guilties versus not guilties versus settlements? And this is a, kind of a different case because you're not talking about an assault or a break and enter or something. You're talking about kind of like high political drama. I mean, I don't even know how often such things come to court. So, I mean, I don't know how much data we would have. All I would say is that there's damage done regardless. There's the, the perception is that, you know, again, wh- whether it's with this, this kind of crime or with a, you know, a more traditional kind of crime, you might be found innocent in the court of law, but the court of public opinion's threshold for, for deniability is much, is much lower. They don't have to have you guilty beyond a reasonable, reasonable doubt to believe you are. And I think there's a chance that for some people, and maybe some of these people wouldn't have voted for Kathleen Wynne or the Liberals anyway, they think she's guilty and that's that. But there could be some swing people that a guilty kind of verdict could hurt her in the election, could hurt her in writings like this, um, and could be used by um, political opponents to another thing to say, this government is scandal-ridden. Christo Avalis is with the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Ontario's independent fiscal watchdog, that's the Financial Accountability Office that uh, looks out for us, much like the Auditor General does, says that hiking minimum wage could cost 50,000 jobs uh, at least. To talk more about all of this, Julie uh, Kaczynski is with us, Director of Provincial Affairs, Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and is on the line with us now. Hi, Julie. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having us. So we hear so many different opinions on this, uh, each armed with stats saying that their position is right. But when the Financial Accountability Office comes out and says this, how do we interpret this? Well, a couple of comments. Um, We were very pleased to see an independent officer of the Legislative Assembly of Ontario come forward with a commentary on the minimum wage. From our perspective, Scott, as a representative of 42,000 small and medium-sized businesses in Ontario, we were hoping and waiting for a validation of things that we've been trying to get through to government for the past few months, including their minimum wage policy, an increase of 32% in only 18 months will result in job losses, 
It will disproportionately hurt young Ontarians, and it is not the best way to reduce poverty. And it's all, in our opinion, it's all ideologically driven. That's why there's a tight time frame for this. It's all about getting reelected, and that's not the right way to do policy in this province. There's no evidence whatsoever that the government has brought forward that businesses can afford this, and we're saying no, businesses can't. This is too fast. It's at such a great magnitude, and the minimum wage is already going up at the rate of inflation every year. Uh, Does the Canadian Federation of Independent Business agree with raising the minimum wage? Is is that the issue, or is the issue the speed in which it is all being done, and, uh, of course, the extent? Okay, couple of things here, if you don't mind me backtracking. Go for it. End of March, the Minister of Labour made an announcement saying the minimum wage again this year, will go up as per the rate of inflation. October 1st, 2017, it's going 1140 to 1160. And then he praised himself and his government for the impartiality of this process. No politics in the process. It's the consumer price index, nothing political there. And he further said people will have more money in their pockets. Businesses will be able to plan. Two months later, does the 180 announces this minimum wage plan, unprecedented historically, 32% in 18 months. And businesses are telling us, they're calling me every day, how am I going to pay for this? I already have hydro costs, now these new cap and trade costs, the federal government is hammering on me with a number of initiatives, including new tax policy changes, CPP increases, EI increases. How am I supposed to pay for this? So our issue is, number one, the government already had a system in place to raise the minimum wage. And number two, it's a 32% increase in 18 months. But maybe more importantly, number three, no consultations whatsoever. The government just underwent a two-year process reviewing labor laws. And in that process, called the Changing Workplaces Review, the minimum wage was explicitly removed from the discussions, from the scope and mandate. It was right on the website. This isn't to be discussed. And the Minister of Labor went around telling people, oh, yes, the minimum wage not to be discussed till 2019 or 2020 until after the election. So we were broadsided by this, the small business community. And shame on the government, Scott. Businesses are paying for this. Not one penny comes from government. Businesses, is pay- businesses are paying for this. So you would think logically that you would approach the payers, the people paying for your plan, to ask them, can you afford this? So what we've been saying, Scott, is this isn't about whether or not you want to help people. Everybody wants to help people. That's not the issue. Although the other side would want to minimize it to that level and simplify it because it's easy, it's an easier argument. It's much more complicated than that, much more complicated. So we've been saying in light of all this, especially the Financial Accountability Officers Report, stop this reckless plan. Conduct your own economic impact analysis, consult on that, then decide what the further steps are. And those further steps could mean the timeline, could mean the amount, but nobody knows, like none of this comes with evidence. Even the $15, that is a labor-backed campaign Fairness for 15. That's where that number came from. Nobody did a study to say this is what the number should be. So we're saying, come on, people, let's do some sound policy. Do your homework. Do your homework. That's all we're saying. Do your homework. Tell us what the impact would be on small businesses, on the economy, given all the other costs that businesses are already forced to bear and will be forced to bear in the next few years. Uh, Labor Minister Kevin Flynn argued Ontario's economy is growing uh, fast and can absorb these higher wages and and basically alluded raise the prices. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know. I'll admit, I'm confessing here, you know this already, I'm not an economist. But I'm seeing things in the news every day about the housing crisis, the housing crisis going down, things happening in the States. Um, I'm questioning whether 
this is really going to happen, whether this is what I like to call artificial confidence. Because I have to go by the people that I deal with every day, Scott. And I have small business owners calling me every day, and they're not telling me that the sky is blue and there are no clouds. Hmm. They're telling me, and I'll just share a couple of survey tidbits with you. We conducted a survey in July on how businesses would react in their everyday operations to minimum wage increases, which, by the way, and people forget this, the plan is to go to $14 on Jan 1st, 2018, which works out to something like 23%, and then $15 on Jan 1st, 2019. And I think we all know why the big increase is on Jan 1st, 2018 to $14. There's something called an election on June 7th. Mm-hmm. So our argument is, why are you doing this so fast? Why? Why? And we know the real answer to that. This is not about helping people. It's about helping yourself get reelected. Because if you really want to help low-income people, there are better ways to do it. And even if you look at the report, Scott, there's a lot of little things in there that if you dissect it, like we're really concerned too. There's a line in here where it says that the number of minimum wage workers will increase from 500,000 yeah. to 1.6 million. Mm-hmm. I, saw but that. I don't think that's anything to be proud of. That tells me that instead of helping people get skilled, get better jobs, we're just satisfied with the status quo. This, you know, Julie, this is something that has been a thorn in my side as we continue with these discussions and have had and have had these discussions for a long period of time. How can we arrive at a minimum wage when we haven't really defined what a minimum wage is supposed to be. And I've used this example mm-hmm. a bazillion times on the show, but I'll give it to you again. I mean, you know, when I was a kid and uh, I was a teenager pushing a broom in a Woolworth store, I made minimum wage and I never thought to myself, gee, how am I going to be able to raise a family on this? I have said to this to advocates of raising the minimum wage, they say, what you don't understand, Scott, is it's not like that anymore. And the people that are making minimum wage now are people that have been shut out of manufacturing jobs and it's not enough for them to survive. So how really at the end of the day, you talked about the the fifteen figure and how they, they what they base that on. Uh, how can we really come at any come to any sort of figure when we haven't really uh, defined what the minimum wage is for? And and again, I've tried to look at stats that say in Ontario, uh, less than nine percent of the working population even makes minimum wage, and of that nine percent, two thirds of them are kids or, or teens and young adults. So where are there lots of people who are trying to pay the rent on minimum wage? Are there that many people? Yeah, I think you raise a very valid argument. And I think I like to call this seeing the forest for the trees. What is the real issue here? And I think what it is involves, it involves some really sound policy decisions that need to be made and not quickly on the back of a napkin. Everybody, you know the expression that takes a village to raise a child? Mm -hmm. The same thing applies here. You can't look at this in silos. The Ministry of Education has to be involved. Housing has to be involved. Community and social services. Like, what are we really, I totally agree, Scott, and I'm sure our members would agree as well. What is the minimum wage? Is it pay or is it the value of the work well is it is it is it a starter job is it like an internship or is it something is it a career position is it a career position or is it a starter job that's the question good point and do we want it to be a career position because to me that's not the kind of ontario you want to live in where status quo we're happy that everybody makes that's nothing to brag about i would be happy if the government said you know, we should raise the personal income threshold. There's a start. Like, let's start. Maybe it's a baby step, but it's better than doing nothing. So right now, when you fill out your income tax, you're not taxed up to $10,011 in Ontario. Why not raise that up to, I don't even know the number. Figure it out, 13, 14, 15,000, so that low-wage earners could keep more money in their pocket. And number two, maybe there are tax incentives, tax breaks, something, skills, incentives. We've had people call, somebody said to me, Julie, let's see if there's some kind of a small business tax credit for hiring young people. 
different ideas, but let's have that discussion outside of an election. So mm. it's not about getting reelected. Maybe do it after the election, so we know it's not it, it's not based on ideology. Like the question to me, and our members are saying, Julie, it's frustrating for us because we do want to help people. And by the way, sixty four percent of our members in our survey said that they pay fifteen dollars and above already. Hmm. So if that's the case, what's the problem? Why can't we all do it? Well, the problem is this. It's something, and I had no idea, it's something called wage compression. What happens is, especially in the restaurant industry, very slim profit margin, something like 3.4% on average in Ontario. So you're a business owner owning a restaurant, minimum wage is coming down. You expect if the bill passes, $14 Jan 1st, and then $15 Jan 1st a year later, 2019. So you say to yourself, I can't afford this. I've got to cut corners. What do I do? And this is identified actually in the FAO's report. And I just, I have it in front of me. So I'm actually going to find the page so I can read it to you. Studies have indicated that businesses which face higher payroll costs typically respond by laying off inexperienced workers. Given this, the job losses would be expected to be concentrated among teens, young adults, and recent immigrants. So, in a nutshell, this whole issue of the domino effect, i.e. wage compression, Mm. you're basically letting go, because you have to, you can't afford to run your business unless you cut costs. You let go of the inexperienced workers to pay higher skilled workers a little bit more. But then further, because the government's saying 32% increase in 18 months, everybody will likely be asking for a wage increase because the person below them got one. Well, that's wage yeah. compression. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if, if you're not making minimum wage or you're making slightly above it now, and then, of course, it ends up you're making minimum wage, I mean, you're going to go into your boss and say, hey, I was above minimum wage. Now I'm not. I want to raise. So, yeah, you could certainly see the rippling effect. Um, but, but you know, many say that this will, you know, by giving people more and more money, that this is going to inject uh, money into the economy. This is going to help the economy. If people have more money in their pocket, Julie, they're going to spend more. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Sure, no, and I appreciate it because that's a valid point. But number one, if you don't have a job or your hours are cut, that point's moot. And let's say you still do have a job and you have the same hours. Prices are going to go up especially in an industry like the restaurant industry, which I've learned so much about. Apparently, they have a very interesting supply chain. So as the product moves along the supply chain, let's say, for the sake of argument, pepperoni, that cost of pepperoni keeps getting higher as it moves through the food chain and gets to the restaurant owner. I mean, we even had one member call who said that the price of their pizza will go up from $11 to $17. So your thought is probably, well, how's this guy going to stay in business? He's a local guy. People love him. So guess what? They're going to still buy his pizza, but they're not going to buy it as often. So it's going to be maybe death by a thousand cuts, where slowly he lays off people, sticks around for a little while, and then he just can't sustain that business anymore. Which brings me to the point that the FAO financial accountability officer talking about this loss of 50,000 net jobs. I mean, that is a huge chunk, which may not be realized immediately, but it's going to happen. And just so you know, Scott, we're already hearing from a lot of our business owners saying that even though this bill hasn't passed, this isn't a done deal yet. They are already taking steps. They're already taking steps. How do you think, Julie, this is going to play? How do you think this is going to play out in the public, Julie? Uh, Everyone wants a raise. Uh, Younger people now seem to be more uh, into socialism than capitalism. How how do you think Mm -hmm. this is going to play in the public? Is this message falling on deaf ears, even though it comes from the Financial Accountability Office, which, of course, is a nonpartisan organization? Well, I can tell you one thing. I think we're getting through to the point where we're at least neutralizing people to understand. See, you have to appreciate that when this was announced, we were broadsided. So this, we're talking just the end of May. Because there was everybody, like I said, two months earlier, 
they put out the news release about the increase as per the rate of inflation from 11.40 to 11.60 on October 1st. So I think people, it's a tough argument to win, I'll concede that, because people on quote-unquote the other side of the argument, they'll say things like, oh, you don't want to help people, and try to minimalize and trivialize and reduce the argument to a very basic level. And we're saying, "Uh, uh, uh, I'm not going to fall into that trap. We want to help people, but there's a better way to do it. These are are good goals. It's a good goal to want to help somebody out of poverty. I think we can all agree on it. But Scott, what is the best way to get there? That's where we disagree. This this to me really parallels the whole electricity file. Because again, no input Mm -hmm. on that. Just go hell-bent on an idea without doing the cost analysis. Again, accountability offices. uh, Auditor General saying, no, you're doing this wrong. And then, of course, it all comes home to roost. And she admits she made a mistake and refinances the whole thing. Is that going to resonate with with the public, though? Because everybody's got to pay high electricity bills. Everybody's ticked off about that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. that's sort of a a universal thing across the province. This, some people are benefiting from it. So in the sense, would they, do you think this is as strong as the electricity issue? Do you think people say, well, yeah, but this is a good idea? Or do you think they'll draw the parallels and go, you know, the lack of due diligence, the lack of cost analysis that was done in the electricity file, the same thing is happening here. I wish they would. I hope people are listening to this program because I am not hearing a lot of that from our members making the parallel, making the connection, but I wish they would. And further, I wish the Premier would make the same move, i.e. admit that she made a mistake, Mm. because that's what she did on the hydro file, and say, look, you know what? We're moving at this too quickly. We're going to listen to the business owners who are paying for this. We're going to stop Take a deep breath, and we are going to conduct an economic impact analysis and do this right. Because other than that, this is very, I mean, if I'm a person thinking of coming to Ontario to set up a business, why would I even do it in this climate? It's terrible. Julie Kwasinski. This is not a business-friendly Ontario, that's for sure. Julie Kwasinski has been with us, Director of Provincial Affairs, Ontario Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who, uh, as the Ontario Independent uh, Fiscal Watchdog, the Financial Accountability Office, says it's time to take a look at this and slow it down. Julie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Scott. Bye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Two reports came out yesterday in regard to jobs. One says that the most popular degrees that uh, students are applying for are not the ones where the jobs are. The other suggests for Ontarians to remain strong in this work environment, they must be equipped with transferable skills. To decode all of this, and we'll even touch on the minimum wage issue too, Marvin Ryder is with us, a business professor at a group school of business at McMaster University. He is with us now. Thank you for taking the time, Marvin. Uh, we appreciate this. My, my pleasure. I just had to take time away from admiring myself in the iPhone 10. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at you. Are you into this? No, not really. I, I, I think just so. think it's hilarious that Yesterday, when Tim Cook was trying to demonstrate the iPhone 10, yeah, it didn't it, work. It wouldn't recognize him. Who are you? Not your phone. <laughs> really? Go away. Maybe if you held up a picture of Steve Jobs, that would have worked. Go. You know, I, you know, it was speaking of Apple. We we've talked on this show many times, and I've said, how long is the public going to keep getting sucked into every year? Da 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 da. New thing, new thing, and it's really not that new. But then somebody on the Bill Kelly show drew a great comparison to the auto industry of days gone by, and how every September the new cars came out. And there was auto shows all over uh, North America, and it was a new model, even though it just had a you know a change in this and a change in that and, and a change in color maybe, and and everybody came out to see whether they were buying or not. That's really what this has become, isn't it? Well, unfortunately, we are not professional consumers, not the way say businesses are when they go out and buy products, and we can be uh, fooled by flashy things. Put a little chrome, a reflective this. Uh, say we've got more megapixels in the camera, and then suddenly I got to have it. I got to have it. Uh, this is our one of our problems. We are not professional consumers. Now, Scott, hold on. This is going to shock the hell out of you. My smartphone is five years old. Good for you. I use a Samsung Galaxy S3. 
free. Wow. And everything works fine for me. Does I don't it, does need it, everything else. Does it have a crank on it, Marvin? It does. It does. <laughs> it does. And it doesn't go well on cold mornings. But other than that, <laughs> it's not bad. And, and you know, people say, well, Marvin, oh, my God, old technology. I, I don't need some of this other stuff, these bells and whistles. And now, with a price tag of $1,200, yeah. you're paying more for your smartphone than you are a laptop computer. I hear you. All right, let's talk about uh, our kids being prepared. Right. Uh, Deb Matthews uh, said that we are working together with colleges and universities to set the foundation for broader post-secondary education system uh, transformation, included, including in areas like experimental learning, teaching quality, uh, economic development. It seems that they are now telling us to shoot broad or students to shoot broad uh, or businesses or educational institutions when we've been telling the kids to, to be specific at an earlier age. It's like kids are stressed out because they've got to make all these decisions at a younger age. Are they getting conflicting messaging here? Well, I understand I understand the way you're interpreting the message. I would interpret a little differently, and it's a message that I think has been consistent over 30 years, and that is that whenever you do post-secondary education, what the key skill you're trying to learn is to learn how to learn. In other words, uh, when I did my d- degrees 30 years ago, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have uh, laptop computers, we didn't have these technologies, and yet somehow I still function in this world. Well, how do I function in this world since I wasn't trained for it 30 years ago? Well, th- what I learned was how to learn, how to keep myself current, mm. how to keep myself up to date with technologies. And, and one of the problems I think we have is, is this idea of specificity that I'm going to come in and I'm going to learn how to press the right key on the keyboard, and that's all I'm going to do for the next 40 years. And you aren't going to have a job if you do that. What you have to do is learn how to learn. The current technology or the current skills are, yes, we're certainly going to teach you those, but you need to learn them in the context of this is how I go about learning and how I go about keeping current. Uh, Scott, I'm going to tell you a silly story. Years and years and years ago, when the metric system was introduced to Canada, my father, who was a shift supervisor in a factory, took a night course offered by a community college in the metric system. Hmm. And I asked him, well, why are you doing that? And he said, I know my company is going to convert. The sooner I understand it, the more I'm going to be able to contribute. And sure enough, when the company did launch a metric conversion, my father was chosen to help lead that conversion and train other people. He kept, kept himself very relevant. But if you're one of those people who said, oh, those computers, that's for those kids to learn. I'm not going to bother. All you're signaling to your employer is that you want to be irrelevant and eliminated from a job. With this technology, are we teaching that critical thinking? Are we teaching kids uh, how to learn to learn? So I believe the So I'm biased, obviously, because I, I work in our post-secondary education system. I think on balance we are. Now, there are exceptions to the rule, and I, I certainly see parents who um, tell the kids, you know, just go in there and learn this. Just come in there and get that. And they seem to be shut down to this greater possibility. And, in fact, when nice people like me try to open that door, they sometimes get a conflicting message from parents who say, I didn't pay that money for you to learn that. I paid money so you could be the doctor or the dentist or whatever, engineer, and don't you get expanding those horizons. Um, and, and I think... You need to remember that the educational system is only one of many influences on people. Again, I used to joke about our public education system, elementary and secondary, and people would complain about the teachers, but the teachers only get them for six hours a day, 18 hours a day, it's the family. Who do you think they learn more from, Mm. the teachers or the family? Hmm, Good point. Uh, do students or officials have a grasp of the changing economy? Do d- does everybody realize that the career they may go to school for may not be the ones they fi- the one they finish their career with? Yeah, again, I'm going to say I think the answer to that is yes. And so if I if I can just bridge to the study that came out from the OECD, who said that well, look, you know, 29 percent of Canadian post secondary students are taking business and law, but boy, they really should be in engineering and information technology. Whoever wrote that, I think, has a false sense of what we teach in a business school, to think that we teach business without teaching information technology. Yeah. Now, now, no, it's true. We don't teach you how to write a smartphone app, or we spend hours helping you do coding of different kinds. But by gosh, we certainly talk about uh, um, the, analytics, the, the analytics that come out, analyzing data, using data, using all that stuff that comes out of those 
smartphones and other things to make better decisions, data-driven is the way we'd like to describe it. So it, this idea that somehow if I'm taking business, well, I don't really understand any about information technology is quite false. Uh, vice versa, uh, I think also if you're taking engineering and to think, well, I'm just going to learn engineering without understanding a little bit about management is also false. We're trying to create a graduate who can get not only an entry-level position, but then continue to add value over their careers. That's, that's really how we, we stand back and look at grads, and we look at them not only five years out or ten years out, but 20 or 30 years out. And generally, we're very pleased at how our graduates and other universities and college graduates have helped transform the world. Uh, obviously, you're a business professor at the Groot School of Business. Are there are, are we are, are we training too many business people? Are there too many lawyers? Oh, too different. I didn't questions. mean I didn't mean to lop that in with you, Marvin. There, <laughs> you slid that in. I did. So I will say that I I am a little concerned on the law school side of it. Uh, I have met many lawyers who come out and they they can't get a job and they look at the cost of setting up their own practice and they're finding it a bit prohibitive. That's where I rub shoulders with them on sort of the entrepreneurial side of setting up your own practice. And I wonder if maybe we are putting out a few too many lawyers. Now, is that a university problem? Well, really, it goes back to our partner, the government. Tuition only pays uh, roughly 40% the cost of the education. The other 60% comes from the government helping to finance it. So when, when we want to do something, let's suppose I wanted to have more business school students, I have to turn to the government and say, are you prepared to fund more business school students? Uh, and I think this is where the government has some role to say, well, you know, I think we want to transfer some of this funding. We're going to cut back maybe on the number of lawyers and put more elsewhere. For the moment, uh, Scott, especially on the business school side of it, uh, our graduation and emplacement rate remains very strong. Uh, six months after graduating, roughly 90% of our students who are looking for work have work. Some of them are looking to do a post-secondary master's degree, or maybe they're planning to travel, so we don't throw those into the mix. But those who want jobs, we get them within six months. So for the moment, anyway, our grads are being sucked into the economy as quickly as we can produce them. We are concerned, though, you know, everyone looks at automation and looks at at what we can do with information technology and how it might be uh, changing the future, will we still need as many auditors, let's say, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? So we're keeping our finger on the pulse of that, but for the moment, the answer seems to be that, that our graduates are still finding employment and are still contributing productively to society. As as this mentioned, uh, too many business administration and law, there are the jobs are in engineering and information technology. Would that change 5, 10 years from now? Well, it always evolves and changes, and I think that's another important thing to understand. Um, society doesn't say static. Our, our needs are constantly changing depending upon what we invent. I use another example, Scott. I graduated in 1984 with an MBA. This is when I started here at the university. Uh, I used uh, punch cards in a computer at that point. Yep. <laughs> in, in 1997, 13 years later, I was appointed the chief information officer of the university, um, when I was appointed chief information officer, that was a position that didn't exist when I graduated 13 years earlier because, again, the needs of the world keep changing over time. And will we need a chief information officer 15 years from now? You know, these, these are questions. So we do evolve over time. I do want to point out one other quick thing from the OECD study, if you don't mind. They, they threw in engineering and they threw in uh, technology, but they also threw in the word construction. Mm -hmm. uh, construction is obviously not something we teach at a university, but is certainly part of education offered at a community college. And I do think another challenge we have, and it goes back to parents, is valuing work that isn't necessarily 9 to 5 in an office. In other words, we still need people who can uh, uh, help build a home, uh, you know, uh, do drywall, plumbing, um, these other mechanical construction-related tasks. There's nothing to sneer at here. There's a lot of technology in those. If you think, you know, do, doing air conditioning in a home is just, you know, a little, a little of this, a little of that, and bam, bam, you're done, you're crazy. There's a lot of technology involved in all this stuff. There are motherboards, computers, and all of your furnaces and air conditioners. We need to value that kind of work and make sure that students understand that that is an equally valued career path. And that's another thing I think we have a problem we seem to value the office worker. We don't seem to put the same value on the construction worker. Hmm. Uh, what I some may read this and think, well, you know, if I'm not strong in math and sciences, I'm dead. What happens to those that aren't strong in math and sciences? Well, you, know, you, you raise a good question. I, I like to get rid of that word strong. 
you know, uh, almost every career of some sort is going to involve some math and some science today. Mm-hmm. So you need to have some basic conversational skill. Now, obviously, if you're going to get into designing things for space shuttles and intergalactic flight, then your level of mastery of mathematics needs to be at a higher level. But we, we again need to get people away from this badge that, oh, you know, I'm not good with math. We, we need to make sure everyone has some mathematical literacy as we go forward. Uh, even, even for things like governance on boards of directors, you know, I teach in our director's college, and I, I get these odd board members who say, well, I'm good at the strategic stuff, but I'm not good at numbers. I say, you don't have that luxury anymore. Hmm. You have to have some level of literacy on all of these things. And this is, again, something I think parents can help uh, in, in putting value on with students. Um, so that someone said uh, the other day we were talking about this and talked about electives and how there aren't, you know, uh, we cut back on things that we don't think are a necessity. How valuable is it to have these different experiences from different uh, areas of study? Yeah, so we have a former chancellor at McMaster by the name of Red Wilson. Mr. Wilson made a lot of his money working with Bell Canada over the years. He, he donated a building on campus, but the building he donated was for an house, and houses, excuse me, humanities. And when asked why would this business person invest in humanities, he said it had been his experience that people who have uh, an interest in the arts, in literature, in history, can make significant contributions to a company, so much so that this year the School of Business is doing a joint degree with humanities, the integrated, um, I think it's called Business and Humanities degree, uh, and, and we're attracting some of the brightest students out there, students with a 90-plus high school graduation average, who see that, that there's a connection between those. So I think, again, we do these things at our peril if we suddenly say, well, music's not important, or, or English is not important, or history is not important. No, you know, there are lessons to learn. If, for instance, if you think that what's going on between Samsung and Apple is not similar to a battle between two warring nations, hmm. you're crazy. And there are parallels and things you can learn from studying the history of war that can be equally applied to business. All right, let's move on to minimum wage. Right. Uh, Financial Accountability Office uh, came out and said that uh, this is going to, co- the increases coming in, in 2018 and 19 are going to uh, create uh, 50,000 job losses, mostly with teens and young people. Your thoughts on all of this, especially when it comes from the FAO. Yeah, well, here's where I'm coming from on this, Scott. As we look back, as we look back and we look at every minimum wage increase, not just in Ontario, but around North America, every minimum wage increase was met with predictions of great job losses, and they just have not happened. Now, why is that? Well, there's a certain amount of work that has to be done, and it's going to have to be done whether it's charged at $11 an hour or $14 an hour. It is absolutely true that small business cannot absorb that kind of a price increase on its own. Then the question is, how are they going to react? What many of the small business lobby are suggesting, uh, that, well, you know, how am I going to react? I'm going to cut those jobs out. I just don't think that's likely. I do think it's likely that you and I are going to pay a bit more. I think they're going to have to increase prices. When I suggest that to small business people, they say, well, Marvin, that'd be cutting my throat. If I raise my price and my competitors don't, then I'm going to lose business. And I go, wait a minute, all of you are in the same boat. This is not a voluntary thing that you're doing and nobody else is doing. Everyone's facing the same cost structure. Now, I I will say this jump for January, not the jump coming on October 1st, that's from 1040 to 1060, that's very doable. And if on January 1st we went to $12 or 1250, that would be doable. It is quite a jump from 1060 to 14 dollars. So we're going to have a real live laboratory for the first six months of next year to see what really happens. Kathleen Wynne, to some extent, is uh, gambling her reelection on the success of this. If it turns out that the poorest people in our country, uh, in our province, excuse me, uh, do well by this minimum wage increase and jobs are not lost, she could very well lead to a reelection. If the predictions are right and 20,000 jobs are lost, then she's lost all hope. I, I just don't see where this has actually happened in the past. This might be a groundbreaker. This might be the first time, but it's never, ever happened before. Do you think that has something to do with the definition of minimum wage? And, and we've talked about this before many times on the show. Uh, I, I'm not sure how you can r- arrive at a value for minimum wage when we don't really have a definition of what it should be. Is a minimum wage job a starter job, an apprentice job, or is a minimum wage job a career path? 
yeah. And unfortunately, the answer is yes to all of those things. There are There is a chunk of our society who, for whatever reasons, seem to only be able to achieve a minimum wage job, and then they work in that for all of their lives. So this is where poverty advocates say, well, if that's, if that's what that chunk of society has, do we have some obligation to make sure that that's also a living wage for them? Now, a student who works at, let's say for the sake of argument, Cops Coliseum taking tickets, being an usher, and, they, and it's, it's only a part-time job to first with, uh, they would appreciate more money in their pocket, but that's not going to be their career for life. Uh, this is also why we have a couple of different minimum wages, one for people who work in a in a bar and one who's also a student wage. But this is the problem. If you improve it for some, you have to improve it for all because it's a minimum wage for everybody, not just those who need it the most. Uh, I, again, I, I am very, very hopeful because we, we're not the first people to $15 or get moving in this way. Where we've looked at this in Seattle, what have you, the only thing we've seen has not been loss of jobs. We have seen some loss of hours. And now you get into a question of break-even. If I used to do 30 hours and now I'm doing 25, even though I've got this $15 an hour wage, am I better off? And there are a few people in that study in Seattle who were not better off. They actually wound up taking home less money because their hours were reduced. Hmm. But we didn't see it in terms of the job. They still had the job. It was just the number of hours they did. We often hear uh, people complain that wages are slow to raise, uh, to, to, to go up, to rise. Uh, is this the answer to that? Uh, because we all know if one person at the bottom gets a raise, then eventually the person above them is going to say, well, now I'm making the same as minimum wage. I, I was above that. Right? It, yeah. So is, is this the answer to elevating us all? Well, I'm going to say partly yes. Remember what happened 10 years ago? We had this big recession, and everything kind of got into a freeze mode. Oh, you know, I'd be glad to give you more money, but look how difficult the economic times are. As luck would have it, this year, 2017, is probably going to be the best year in economic history, at least recent economic history. If there was ever a time for employers to say, you know, I should start sharing the wealth a little bit more, this is the time to do it. And we also note over this last 10-year period where the wages in the bottom half haven't moved, the wages in the top half sure have. And this, this whole question of the gap between the, the rich and the poor, those who have and those who have not, if you saw the bottom moving up at the same rate as the top, you'd say, well, so be it. That's a, a standard thing. But instead what we've seen is people at the top seeming to get more raises with the people at the bo- bottom not sharing in. And this this is a way to force those companies to spread the wealth around a little bit more. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, a pleasure. Thanks very much for the time. Anytime, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.